Hello, everybody. I'm Elizabeth Archer. Welcome to the Farm and Garden Show, which I am hosting for the very first time today. This is the first time I've ever hosted a radio show. So thank you so much for joining us. I am starting off with a bang for my first show with two incredible guests. I know you're going to enjoy this conversation. And we will take call in questions in the second half of the show. So if you have questions, stick around. First, I'm delighted to introduce Dr. Adina Marinlender. She is an internationally renowned conservation biologist and a cooperative extension specialist at UC Berkeley. She lives right here in Mendocino County in Elk. Adina founded the California Naturalist Program and helped start the first public education and service program on climate stewardship, including writing the just published book, Climate Stewardship, Taking Collective Action to Protect California. Full disclosure, I helped Adina with the logistics of getting this book written and published, and I am so proud to be bringing it to you today. Our second guest is Craig McNamara, the owner of Sierra Orchards, a 450-acre organic walnut farm in Winters, a small town in the Central Valley. Craig has been the owner and operator since he purchased the land in 1980, and he now co-manages the farm with his son, Sean, and daughter, Emily. Craig is also the former president of the California State Board of Food and Agriculture, where he advocated for sustainable farming practices. Over the years, Craig has witnessed the impact of climate change firsthand. Adina interviewed Craig for the Climate Stewardship book, and it's very exciting to have them both here today to talk about sustainable farming practices in a changing environment. So we got some heavy hitters right off the bat for this show. Welcome, Craig and Adina. Thank you so much for joining us. It's really fun to be here with you, Elizabeth, on your first ever show and my first ever from Mendocino County with Adina. Absolutely an honor. Thanks for inviting us, Elizabeth. Oh, it's my pleasure. So I'm hoping to start with some questions for Craig. Um, so, Craig, you primarily grow and sell the Chandler variety of walnuts. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the Chandler variety and why it's specifically suited for California? Well, I'd be happy to do so, but I do have to make a correction. Chandler is actually not the uh, largest part of our operation. I would say Hartley or Howard. And let me just give you a little history about walnuts. Um, the Chandler is what we think of as the queen of the harvest. She comes in with a very full-bodied meat and uh, a very blonde color. I'm, I'm not being facetious here. I, I do believe that there is racism in food. And the whiter the color of bread remember wonder bread being very white same with walnuts peep the consumer's eye is trained for the color of something i don't think the chandler uh, variety flavor is as robust as the hartley or the howard so actually that's more of our cultivation are on those two varieties the hartley being much older probably 100 years old that's so interesting. Thank you. Sorry for my mistake about no, my, it's not my mistake own food racism showing through. <laughs> um, <laughs> can you talk to us about the impacts of weather on walnuts and how you monitor and adapt to the weather in our changing climate? Yeah, I do think that as we're all aware and your listeners are so aware that we, our, our, our climate has changed. And as farmers, we are on the front lines of living with that change and possibly more importantly, making decisions for the future uh, of that change. As you mentioned, my wife and I are so um, honored to have our son, Sean, and our daughter, Emily, 
um, fully integrated into our farming operation. And when I look into their eyes and I look at the anxiety that they're experiencing as new farmers, like I was 45 years ago, I do wonder how they're going to cope with this changed climate. Specifically on your question, all um, um, nuts and stone fruits require winter chilling. And each um, variety has a different amount of hours that they need. In the case of walnuts, it's about um, a thousand hours of temperatures that are in the 40 degree range. And as Mendocino folks and winters folks know, that those are the months of December, January, February, March. So as our climate has changed and warmed, we haven't had those chilling hours. What happens is, the physiolo physiologically, the tree doesn't mature, the fruit sets don't mature at the same time frame. So you'll get a disparate bloom, which means at harvest time, like today we're harvesting walnuts, some walnuts would be riper than others, um, which creates a problem. So the other part of climate change is a walnut in the middle of the summertime, remember, is very dark green. It's got the walnut meat, the shell, and the hull. That dark green hull burns and sunburns when it's 105 degrees. So climate change really is impacting us today. And what actions are you taking to protect your, your walnuts um, now and sort of adapting for future years? We know that every year is going to be warmer than the last year. Well, I think the big factor with climate change is drought. And, you know, I think those of us who, many of your listeners, I'm sure, have lived in California longer than I have. I came here in 1969 to begin my studies. Um, so you know that our, our weather is, is warm and, and dry. Um, and, and we remind me exactly what you were asking on that question, why I was thinking, oh, I was thinking of drought as it relates to climate change. But your question was specifically. I'm, I'm certainly interested in how you're adapting to drought conditions because that is part of the changing climate. Um, so any adaptations you have for drought, I'm sure dry farming is being explored and also how you deal with reduced chill hours and sunburn. Right. So I, what I was getting at is, creating doing whatever we can to create a robust um, tree so that would be a vigorous tree which depends on water which is why i was uh, zeroing in on on drought we're so fortunate here where we farm to have the puta creek watershed so that fills our aquifers we use pumps we don't have surface water so you know by by properly fertilizing and being an organic operation we depend solely on cover crops leguminous plants um, our son Sean has introduced uh, grazing sheep. Um, so at, at a high point, we've had three to four thousand sheep herd um, um, grazing on the orchard on the cover crops. And then Emily has introduced a flock of seven hundred barred rock chickens. So the, the chickens follow the sheep. The sheep are eating the cover crop. The chickens are leaving their poop and their pee. Uh, she's gathering eggs. And lucky for us, during um, COVID, she was able to find markets. You can imagine with restaurants shutting down and other um, markets not being available, it was, re it was really tough for her to establish this new part of our farming operation. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, are they your sheep or do you rent the sheep? I'm so curious. Oh, that's a great question. You, this is your first interview. I can't <laughs> believe it. 
you're drilling down here pretty deep. Um, so Sean started, uh, in essence, renting them. Um, because, of course, managing a flock of three to 4,000 sheep is more than a full-time operation. Um, what he, he actually is, is more in an apprenticeship right now with a wonderful uh, herdsman uh, from up the valley who I think will, in essence, maybe sell his flock to Sean. Um, I think uh, this, this winter, the fam- our family's making plans and Sean's making plans to maybe purchase 200 sheep. Um, and then their offspring would, would bring the flock up to maybe 500, which is a good number of sheep um, for us to manage. The factor there is we want to make sure that the sheep are removed from our walnut orchards for a 90-day period prior to harvest. So we have no introduction of any uh, fecal matter that could be uh, lead to food, food um, safety issues. So if you Adina here, and I was wondering um, when Elizabeth was asking for some of the actions that you've taken and around the drought, how have you changed the water management of the farm since you first arrived in the sort of surrounding landscape you draw on? Really, uh, probably the most critical issue that we're dealing with. Um, We've we have in place probably four different types of irrigation systems. Um, um, we use a, a, a sprinkler system, a surface sprinkler system, which um, is a hose pull system, just like you'd have in your garden. We've had varied drip, and actually, what we found during the last um, drought um, was that our mature walnut trees were not getting enough water through the buried drip. So Sean investigated a system where we actually went with above ground lines that we hang in the crotches of the trees. And in between the trees are our little spaghettis with micro sprinklers. That's been a very effective way of getting water where we need it. And as both of you know, in order to really stimulate a cover crop that we that we plant right now after harvest, you're going to need surface irrigation. So if you don't get rainfall, you're not going to get uh, germination. By this technique of elevated micro sprinklers, we are getting that type of irrigation, as well as um, the ability to rinse uh, matter into the soils from above. So that. That's really been helpful. And just being, you know, we've employed um, um, pressure bombs. Our, Emily is now our master of irrigation. And so we purchased for $3,000 a pressure bomb that can give us the turgidity, you know, can measure the turgidity of a leaf and specifically tell us when to irrigate. So we've gone to high-tech, high-tech, low-tech. It really takes everything these days to make a go of it to be a successful farming operation, huh? And let, let me just pause and, and um, Adina pitch in here because you're really the expert here. I'd say we are in as challenged an environment as I've ever experienced. I've been farming now for 45 years and um, the factors that we're dealing with um, that actually include the disparity of incomes and social justice issues, immigration issues, uh, climate and drought, um, and of course COVID. Um, and farmers, we're, we're resilient, and yet when we fall financially, we fall very hard, and it doesn't take too many falls to actually knock us out of business. And I, my fear is that farms like ours will be the first to go, and that is a tragedy 
um, to the 2 million farmers across the United States who are trying to make a living like we're trying to make a living. So when you say farms like ours, are you talking about small-scale farms? Well, I thank you for clarifying that. I, I, I need to clarify that. I would say as a 450-acre organic walnut operation, we're, we're kind of in the B-plus category, maybe A-minus B-plus in terms of farm size. Um, and I realize that, you know, the average farm size across the United States, well, that, yeah, is, is probably not acreage-wise, but, but smaller than ours. In California, there are approximately 70,000 farmers. It's amazing in a state of 40 million people, there's only 70,000 who actually are defined as farmers. And the definition coming from USDA, I believe, is a farm that grosses something like $10,000. And we need those small farms and because they really help us and, and produce a lot. But if you look at farms that are grossing, you know, the larger grossing farms, I bet there's only 20,000 farmers that are producing the majority of the food in California. Well, and as we know, the average age of the United States-based farmer and probably globally is rising. So it's actually pretty um, wonderful and miraculous that you have brought your children into the operation and how wonderful all of you that they want to work in uh, your farm with you. That's not always the case. I know my dad was disappointed. I didn't follow in his non-farming footsteps, but um, congratulations on making it a multi-generation farm. Um, I I want to take a quick moment to reintroduce all of us. If you're just joining us, this is the Farm and Garden Show. I am your host, Elizabeth Archer. Our guests today are author and conservation biologist, Adina Marinlender, who just published the book Climate Stewardship, Taking Collective Action to Protect California, and sustainable walnut farmer, Craig McNamara. Adina, I wanted to ask you a question about your interview with Craig for your book. Um, where did that come in the process of writing your book? Was he one of the first toward the end? And what were sort of your lasting takeaways from that conversation? Well, great. And uh, the way I learned about Craig's farm actually is um, researching these sweet grants, so state water enhancement program grants. And then um, I was talking to folks who knew more about those uh, projects and uh, Craig's farm came up as a recipient of that, that those awards. Um, and at the same time, I, there were many recipients <laughs> and we have a few in the book. Um, but I was determined to write about walnuts. They're really such an interesting story, both from the perspective of a native tree. So we have a California native walnut that has a long history in the state. And it has all kinds of interesting facts about um, the perception that it might have been in decline and even endangered. And then realizing after a lot of genetic studies that we do have quite a few remnant native um, sort of purebred California walnuts left. So I was interested in that as an ecologist. And I also find the fact that walnuts were the primary producer of walnuts. Now, Craig, this would be your expertise, but you know, I want to say... Uh, over 90 or more percent of the walnuts at least you'd eat in the United States definitely come from California. And um, so, it, and also talking to Catherine Jarvis Sheen from UC Cooperative Extension and all the sort of interesting aspects of walnuts um, 
as as an agricultural crop. And then lastly, and of course, the topic we're talking about, um, its sensitivity to temperature, um, it, the necessity for water resources. So all the way around, I just knew in my mind it was walnuts. And as soon as I found out that I could maybe reach Craig and he was willing to talk to me, I was really excited to uh, dig into the subject. And I actually think it deserves, and maybe there's already a book out there, but it definitely deserves its own whole book about walnuts because they can, they're really interesting uh, culturally and as food and so many aspects to them. Adina, I'm going to add you to my walnuts for life list. That's wonderful. <laughs> and they're great brain food. They're great yeah. food too, oh, right? Just, we can go on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm wondering, because they are so important, I think, as a food source, what are we going to do about maintaining walnuts into the future? I mean, they do need a certain amount of chill time. They do need a certain amount of water. Some people always think crop replacement, and it just makes me a little sad to think about, well, now we just all have to switch to filberts or pistachios or something else, because the walnut is a special treasure. Well, I would agree with that, and, and the assumption might be that it's going, the production will travel north. Um, you know, Oregon and Washington are fantastic farm states, and they may be ending up, um, you know, their, their till hours may reach the mark of a thousand or thereabouts and and you know i've never been a protectionist in terms of trade uh, i believe in global trade um and i would ask our listeners and myself and my own family where do we want our food to be produced and i am california centric you know we are one of the five mediterranean climates now here's here's a quiz for our listeners we're one of five what are the other four elizabeth do you know the answer Oh, putting on me, put me on the spot. Um, I might, but we could make it a fun competition during the call-in hour. If anyone can oh, tell us That's what they idea. are, we can. We'll give them a copy of Adina's book. Oh my God! And I'll send. I'll send them some walnuts. Ooh. Okay, listeners. Gauntlet thrown. No cheating. No. Yeah. No. No Google. <laughs> you cannot be cheating on this one. So we'll repeat that uh, that special question again when we open the calls up. Um, anyone who can call and give us the right answer will get a book and some walnuts. Um, hey, fun. you know what? I wanted to weigh in on one thing. And, Adina, you're the perfect person to do this. There's the word silvopasture. And my understanding is that, like so many of our words, it has tremendous history. Um, and if you look at if you break it down, silvo, obviously, is forest and pasture is obvious so what does it mean in today's cultivation it means to me bringing forest in our case walnuts together with pasture which is the cover crops so we have walnuts uh, we have the the trees the pastures and the animals so we've got the sheep and the chickens and it's a, a regenerative method of farming that probably has been practiced thousands of years um and it, it's, it's not your classic clean farming at all. As a matter of fact, I, I, I went to UC Davis and got a degree in plant and soil science. And I'll admit here, I came out kind of with a clean view of how I wanted to farm. So my first years were conventional, and then I realized that was not the right way to do it. But I want to put a pitch in here, and Adina, I'd love to hear your thoughts on um, silvopasture. Is that something that you believe is something that we can incorporate into our farms in the future. 
Yeah, absolutely. And you know that it's continued to be widespread practice um, in Latin America and South America. I think we just... Oh, there, she's are you back. back. We lost Adina for a second. <laughs> Um, so I hope that came across that it is widely practiced in other regions and particularly that my most, you know, familiarity with the subject comes from Central and South America. Um, but, and it often is practiced in tropical forests, uh, and where we have mostly beef production along with forestry and agroforestry. So also you know, fruit and nut crops, um, at, and where there is also more water generally <laughs> so i know that is a challenge for our civil cultural systems you know is to get the, the uh, forage going as well as the trees um to meet the demands of the animal production side of things as well, well I think but, a, yeah very integrated systems and a classic example i'm glad you reminded me of that is that wonderful belt the tropical belt around our globe so you have cacao coffee and as you said animal production been practiced for a long time yeah i always think it's interesting um, i mean everybody has their own dietary choices and but i always think with vegetarianism in some ways it's it's very hard to grow crops without animals so yeah. there's there are animals involved <laughs> if it's a if it's sort of a healthy system that is fully fertile um whether or not you choose to eat those animals that's another story but i i really feel that that's an in it that those integrated systems um are much more sustainable and productive. Regenerative, even. I think we should spend a minute on this because it's really important for our listeners as well as ourselves. And I, and I really respect the diversity of opinions, very much respect the diversity of opinions on what diet uh, we all want to eat, whether we're vegan or vegetarian or pescatarian or carnivore or omnivore, whatever it is. That I respect. And I am with Adina globally. I think it would be a tragedy to um, lose the importance of grazing. Can we do it better? Absolutely. Do we need CAFOs? I don't believe that we need confined animal operations. Um, can we do it with anti without antibiotics? Can we do better? Absolutely. But herds, whether they're goats, chicken, pigs, beef, whatever, are critical to our globe's well-being. And I would imagine that some of your listenership may strongly disagree with me on that point. Well, if they do, they can call in at the second half of the show. But um, I do know that regenerative grazing, which is incorporating animals into a farm practice, is gaining popularity, um, which personally I'm happy about as a meat eater who tries to source uh, my meat locally. Um I think that regenerative grazing and silvopasture, as you said, have a real uh, future if we're going to continue to feed the world. Um, I'd like to go back for a moment to the walnuts. Um, in the book, in the Climate Stewardship book, uh, Adina writes about how you apply sunscreen to your walnuts. And this was so interesting to me um, from the book. The conventional wisdom is that it's not cost effective to protect walnuts from sunburn, but McNamara applies white clay and other organic materials as sunscreen a couple of times each summer. So I'm curious, why is the conventional wisdom that it's not worth protecting them? And why do you discard that conventional wisdom? Well, I think 
the, the question is whether it's cost effective. And so um, we, we, in agriculture, we all have production, uh, we all have uh, pest control advisors and we hire a company to do that with us. And so they inspect our orchards weekly and they will report on codling moth and navel orange worm and husk fly, as well as guide us in making decisions about things like sunburn. So the truth of the matter is with sunburn, there's two products. As you mentioned, there's a clay-based product. You, it, it's also believed that by spraying that, we can do it by a ground sprayer, which puts about 200 gallons of, of liquid, which would be water, together with the clay up into the trees. So you, it looks like you've whitewashed the orchard a bit. Or we can use a helicopter to direct the spray downward onto the crop. But that's less liquid, so some people think it's less viable. The second product is a very clear product, which would be like, you know, something we would put on our faces that would be a, a clear versus a creamy product. The issue is cost. Each of the materials is expensive. And of course, a helicopter is expensive, as is a ground rig. Are you actually getting the benefit today at this time of the year when we're harvesting our walnuts? Are we harvesting fewer walnuts with sunburn? The conventional wisdom is you're not um, getting your cost. You're not getting enough walnuts back. Now, particularly in a low-cost year, last year we had our lowest-cost walnuts in about 20 years. This year it's a little better. In a low-cost year, you've got to count. You've got to cut back on everything. So that would definitely be a year when sun protectant wouldn't work. Then there's the other factor about your own mental wellness. I know that the sunburn protectants help the trees. They, you know, they help photosynthesis and they help me. So sometimes I do what helps me, hoping that it helps the trees. I know I, that doesn't sound like I'm much of an ag economist, but it's the truth. I like that answer. Um, okay, I have a question for Adina. We're going to talk for a couple more minutes and then we're going to switch to calls. Um, so Adina, not everyone listening to the farm and garden show, uh, is a farmer. Um, not everybody has the opportunity to steward land like Craig and his family at Sierra Orchards. So what can non-farmers among us do to support farmers and also support the land and help Mendocino County, um, or wherever folks are listening more climate change resilient? Cause the topic of your book is climate stewardship. Yeah, sure. And I put myself in that camp. I'm not a farmer. <laughs> I have a very small garden. Um, and so also the things that I think about are things we can do together. Uh, and some of the th stories that I heard about that I was really impressed with was, for instance, tackling the issue of food waste, which we know has a huge impact on, on climate, right? Because much of the uh, greenhouse gases, you know, that come from agriculture, um, we want to make sure that we take full advantage of them, that we're not, like, leaving them in, on the farm or on uh, in the restaurant uh, and the scrape plate, as they call it, or in our compost bins, things like that. That is sort of composting um, food is the last resort. It's not the thing we want to start with as far as um, saving on food waste which saves uh, carbon emissions and saves water, right? And so when people get together, I was super impressed with these gleaners groups where communities have realized there's uh, food that um, farmers uh, sometimes don't harvest their entire harvest and with volunteers can come and 
get sort of a second harvest out of the farm. But also what I was particularly intrigued with was these gleaners groups who are actually helping harvest backyard gardens. And Mendocino County is one of those places where we're really prolific backyard gardeners. And I think we all know that we walk by our neighbor's trees and we go, wow, they have a lot of pomegranates, a lot of plums, a lot of apples, Figs, a lot persimmons, of everything. Yeah. And, and those of us who have friends, we, we trade and everything. But uh, I was really impressed with the slow gleaners down in the Central Coast who've gotten together and they started by focusing on backyard surplus fruits and veg and getting that to the food banks and to the schools so everyone can have access to healthy food. And then they expanded their uh, volunteer base to uh, work with farmers who um, are willing and it's a super fun thing to do together. Um, and it's really improving the health of their community and minimizing waste um, that, is, that will help us reduce um, the, our impacts on climate change. And I know of at least one group in uh, Mendocino County, the Grateful Gleaners in Willits are a pretty active gleaning group. So that's something that listeners could get involved with. It's also... You don't need a lot of organization to, to glean or to start a gleaning group. You just need a couple of friends and some buckets or boxes and permission. Um, and, you know, you can donate that to the food bank. You can donate it to um, plowshares in Ukiah. So that seems like a really easy, actionable item that listeners could do. Yeah. I'm, I'm so glad that you both brought that up, Adina, because it really is, you know, it's 30 to 40 percent of our food is wasted. Um, some of it in the field, but you know where a lot of it is wasted? In our refrigerators. And so if we each take on the responsibility of ensuring that we don't waste food and that when we do have food spoilage, we unpack it so that we don't take that clamshell of strawberries that have mold on it and throw the entire box into the trash. Separate it out for your compost or however you deal with your wet trash and separate it from your plastic because combined that is the worst worst methane generator that we have. So true. I'm glad you brought up the methane aspect to it as well. Um, which is a shorter lived greenhouse gas um, than carbon dioxide, but a very powerful greenhouse gas. So uh, has a, a big, big impact for sure. Um, and I also wanted to mention the power of farmers markets uh, because we're talking about local food and supporting our local farmers and diversified agriculture. And folks, what, I, what I've observed is that people who are doing diversified agriculture, which we, which we want to see for the benefit of regenerative agriculture and for biodiversity, which as you know, I'm a conservation biologist, so I want to see farms as diverse as possible within of the crops that they grow and also incorporating um, native vegetation that I know uh, Craig does as well. And mostly what I've observed is that a lot of folks who do an extreme amount of diversified agriculture and grow many crops rely on farmers markets to sell their crops directly to the consumer. Uh, and it really made me appreciate I mean, I've always shopped at farmers markets, but now I really go there first. And during the pandemic, I really relied on our farmers markets. I tried to do as much of our food uh, from our farmers markets. And we just have a great program in Mendocino County that we're so grateful for. And uh, I really 
I know that the farmers who are growing so many different crops really appreciate having that venue for direct sales. Of course, we have the food hub, and Elizabeth can talk more about what we have in Mendocino County. I mean, you're absolutely right, Adina. We do have a really terrific system of farmers markets throughout Mendocino County. That's the McFarm organization um, that anyone can look up. But we have several, you know, year-round markets and a couple of seasonal markets. Also, during the pandemic, not that it's over, but um, at sort of the height of the pandemic, there was really an explosion of CSA boxes, community shared agriculture, which is another excellent way to support local farmers. Um, I want to take a moment to reintroduce us. If you're just joining us, this is the Farm and Garden Show. I am your host, Elizabeth Archer. Our guests are Adina Marinlender, an author and conservation biologist, and Craig McNamara, who owns Sierra Orchards, an organic walnut farm in Winters. So it is the second half of the show, and I'm going to open up the lines, 707-895-2448. Again, you can call us now, 707-895-2448. And Craig, can you repeat what our special quiz question is? The special quiz question is, and let's let's focus on the award here. The award is a free book from Adina, an amazing book, and a couple pounds of walnuts. So you'll definitely want to weigh in on this. The question is, there are five Mediterranean climates in the world. Can you please name all five? And I'll give you a giveaway. California is one of them. (laughs) California is the first one. All right, callers. So anyone listening who wants to win a copy of the just-published book, Climate Stewardship, Taking Collective Action to Protect California and a couple of pounds of organic Sierra Orchards walnuts. Give us a call. Um, until we get some calls, uh, let's just keep talking. So, yeah, I, yeah. I was going to chime in because uh, I think it's important. Again, you know, where are we seeing a lot of food waste? And we talked about that and Craig mentioned our refrigerators, which we really need to do due diligence We also see, as estimated by the slow group down in Central Coast, 58 million pounds of food rots in the country's fields. So, you know, our farmers there, I know they try and be as efficient as possible, um, but and we have a whole problem with what they can actually sell and the quality that that's, you know, so maybe Craig has some ideas here. I don't know if you have that same situation, walnuts, because you can sell broken walnuts and half walnuts and whole walnuts. But I, I know a lot of produce, um, they can't move maybe because of a slight blemish or some other issues. Well, I think we've really seen a, an uptick and a resurgence in people's awareness. Isn't that where it all begins? So if we watch our refrigerators, watch what we buy, watch when we go to Costco, you know, that protects us on the commercial side. In the, in the fields, um, I, I uh, Refed is a wonderful organization. I encourage our listeners to uh, Google Refed. Uh, friends Jesse and Betsy Fink started that effort, I'm thinking maybe six or seven years ago, a national effort to reduce food waste in this nation by 50% within 10 years. We have a caller. I'm very okay. excited. Hi, caller. You are live on the air. Hello. Great show. Thank you. Can you hear Yep, we can, okay. we can hear you. California, Central Chile, the Mediterranean Basin, Cap region of South America, Africa, Southwestern, and South Australia. Oh, baby. Oh, I think we have got a it. So, let's see. so we have the Mediterranean. We have California. 
we have South America, and we have South Africa, and we have, did you say Australia? I did. Ding, 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 ding. Nailed it. What's your name? Just to be clear, I think they even got it's Western Australia, right? So Southwestern Australia. And it's Chile and South America. What's your name, caller? My name is Steve. Steve, if I could get you to email dj at kzyx.org, I'll get your information, and we're going to put these great prizes in the mail. Okay, awesome. I appreciate it. I love listening, and I will, uh, let me write that down real quick. Sure. DJ at kzyx.org. Make sure you get it right. I got it. DJ at kzyx.org. That's it. Do you have a awesome. question while we have you? Um, uh, no, but it's ironic that me and my cousin were going over micro sprinklers for he raises peaches out here in Potter Valley, and I have a small orchard of apples, peaches, nectarines, and we were just sitting down this morning making spreadsheets for next year's water use, and we've all switched. We've both switched to micro sprinklers and. We've had really good luck with them, so I, uh, I'm i going to elevate mine to kind of get a little bit more cover crop this next year. But, uh, yeah, I appreciate all the information. It's awesome. Steve, I want you to give a shout-out to our good friends, the Magruder family, to Martha and Kate and Mac and, and uh, Grace. Oh, yeah, yeah, they're neighbors. Great. Oh. And to John Scharfenberger over in Philo. Okay, I will. <laughs> Thanks so Have much. Have a good day. Thank Con- you. Congratulations. All right. Bye-bye. That was fun. <laughs> it's really okay, good. I have, <laughs> I, have another, I have another brain deep tweezer here. Okay. Um, and it, it's a bit of a serious one. How many farmers are there in our globe? How many farmers globally? Um, oh, wow. Adina, do you have a guess? <sighs> I have to say there were fewer in California than I expected. So, but of course, I know that a lot of other countries have a lot of small farmers. So I'm going to guess there's at least 10 times as many farmers in Mexico than we have in California, or maybe 20. Well, well, Adini, actually, you you really picked up on the thread that I wanted to make. And that is, I've read that there are 570 million farms around the world. And... 475 million of those are less than two hectares. So a hectare is what, two acres? That's four acres. And they produce 80% of our world's food. It's just amazing. And most of those, I would guess, are uh, women. Because women globally are the seed keepers and the protectors of the future of agriculture. I'm so glad you mentioned that because when we talk a lot about working landscapes for conservation, the sort of dogma is you have to prove that it can work. You can do diversified organic agriculture on mega farms, on big industrial farms. Like, and that's where the literature goes, you know, with scholars trying to prove that it can be scaled and it can be scaled to, you know, our Midwestern farm size, you know, and it can. I mean, there's a lot of evidence that it can, but is that really the question, right? Like if you have that many small farmers, then diversified ag and regenerative ag, we don't have to spend as much energy as scientists talking about how you scale it to a mega farm when we're not eating from mega farms. It, it's pretty amazing. It's very promising. 
because so many of the techniques that can be employed to reduce the extinction rates and to protect the planet are can be employed in, in an integrated fashion, diversified fashion, you know, on small farms and are in a lot of places. So we have open lines. If anyone wants to call in with questions for Adina Marinlender or Craig McNamara, the number is 707-895-2448. Question for you, Adina. Obviously, again, this is the Farm and Garden Show, but the book you just wrote, the Climate Stewardship book, isn't all about food and farming. That's one chapter. Um, there are about 60 stories in the book of everyday folks taking real concrete actions to protect California. Oh, we have a call. I'm going to get back to this question because calls are fun. Hi, caller. You're live on the air. Yeah. Um, I, I, this is Randy from Willetson. I lived on in Alamo near Walnut Creek for five years from 71 to 75, 78. And uh, we had 23 acres, and three of them were in walnuts. We had 80 trees, and we harvested 3,400 pounds one year, uh, the two of us. Um, we did, but it was dry farming, and I'd like for you to talk about dry farming because there was a stream that ran through the three acres that were in walnuts, and the uh, we, we mulched. You know, we kept had the pasture for the horses, and there were horses and, rather than chickens or sheep. And we rotated the crops. We rotated. We had a three acres and a five acres. But the the animals were not allowed to stay there permanently. They were there for three months. And then we let the land lay fallow for a little while. And uh, so I'd like for you to talk about dry farming. And we had a windmill. And I think that windmills should be coming back. I always wondered how come they don't have windmills more. And uh, there were deer and quail. And uh, it was an old Indian, you know, camp you know, for many, many years before we were there. We were the only, the first people to, to have, you know, the young people. My husband was going to Berkeley in conservation of natural resources, and I stayed home with the kids. We had three kids. But we had native plants, and there were fruit trees. There was a little orchard, and it was just precious and wonderful. And then my son choked to death on a walnut and died in my arms at the place. So there's a tragedy there to watch out for walnuts and babies. You know, it's not, uh, you say, go to heaven, mommy, here's some love. And uh, it was, so there was both the high and the low, you know. And, wow. uh, but I know we got 3,400 pounds one year and, and shelling, the, the walnut shells were used for road erosion. We took the shells and put them on the, on the, on the road that came into the house. So we didn't have to buy gravel. We used the shells, and they were good for stabilizing the, the driveway. And uh, it was labor-intensive, cutting suckers off in the springtime. I used to go up and down the orchard with a hatchet and cut off the suckers on the bottom. Thank you. you. Know what I'm Thank you. You've, you've covered a lot of ground. Um, yeah, it sounds well, like you've had a, I'm a walnut farmer for yeah, about sounds five like years, had... and I grew up on, on a walnut farm. And I think it's really important that all these things, it's so good. And it was only three acres that had the trees. It was a 23-acre farm, but we had the horses and the barn and the open space. And it was precious and wonderful and, and memories, you know, that I carry with me to this day. Wood stove. We cooked on a wood stove, and that was grand. Yeah. We'll have to get, go out I'm... and get it. Thank you so much. I'm going to give um, Craig an opportunity to answer your question about um, dry farming. Well, your your question and your lifestyle is very poignant. And thank you for uh, believing in the land. Thank you for doing all that you've done. You sound like an amazing steward 
of the land. And it's interesting, around my office here, I have a few dry farmed walnut trees as well. And it just, they go against conventional wisdom in the sense, how can they live without water? And yet they've got a fairly decent crop. And I think it goes back to the type of um, regenerative agriculture that you practiced. It sounds like you had mulches, so you were preserving your moisture. It sounds like you had a windmill, maybe bringing water up to the area. You were doing exactly the right thing, and you are an early adapter. We also use walnut shell for all of our landscaping. Now, you don't want to have a party with people with flip-flops because that walnut shell is the hardest product on this earth. They actually use it to sandblast ball bearings, uh, and they used to use it uh, in marine deck, deck coats. So there you go at Dryland Farming. More power to you. Thanks so much. I think one of the things I love the most about Mendocino County is that we do have so many people like that here. It's, um, you know, the original back to the land location people. I think a lot of early adopters before we even called anything early adoption, just doing what felt intuitively right um, to steward the land and also feed themselves and their families and neighbors. So thank you. Now, Elizabeth, I have to come in here and cut off because... We have a new puppy. I haven't had a new puppy in 17 years. And today it's his, um, Odie, Otis is his name. He's four months old. It's his vet business that I have to go to. I know it sounds a little lame, but I got to say goodbye. But I have so enjoyed uh, being together with you and your listeners. You've done a fabulous job. Thank you so much, Craig. I really appreciate you joining us today. And I am going to send you Steve's information to mail him those those walnuts he won. Well, thank, I think the two of you should think of another uh, contest quish, question while I go so we can send some more walnuts and books out. <laughs> okay. Thank you for sharing all your knowledge, Craig. It's really thank great. You. Thank you for writing an amazing book, Adina. Take care. Thanks, Elizabeth. Bye-bye. Bye. See you on the farm. Okay, Adina, maybe I'll finish that question I started um, sure. a moment Let's ago. Um, not yet, but lines are open, 895-2448. Um, so in your book, Climate Stewardship, Taking Collective Action to Protect California, which was just published a couple weeks ago, congratulations, real labor of love. Um, there are about Can six- I have done it without you, Elizabeth? <laughs> <laughs> there are about 60 stories in the book, and it really focuses on everyday people taking action, collective action together. Um, we know by now that climate change is real. We know that we can't wait for nations and governments and large organizations to to save us. Um, and we also know that people are really eager to take matters into their own hands, to do things that that can make a difference. So there are 60 stories from all over the state about people doing just that. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about what other kinds of stories outside of farming and gardening that readers can expect. Sure, sure. And the neat thing about Mendocino County is we can capitalize on a lot of these examples in our county because we, we have forest lands and there's a whole chapter about what people are doing in forests um, as far as uh, generating energy from extra wood fuel and dealing with fire and fire management and underburning, which is a real primary way in which we can protect our uh, forests and our neighborhoods from fire, which has been so devastating for our county. Um, and in particular, I think when people are doing controlled burns, sometimes we think, well, that's cow fire. You know, I can't get involved in control burning, but Cooperative Extension has done a great job of showing communities how to develop their own underburned 
associations and communities. So uh, I think that is uh, a great way to help con uh, volunteer and conduct controlled burns. Uh, also, I think about our county and we have some urban areas and we've just been planting urban trees in Ukiah and those tree selections and, and choices and planting along the rail trail and the amazing work that the trail group has done in Ukiah, you know, providing shade to prevent urban heat islands is super relevant to our communities where we have our urban areas and, um, we see a lot of people engaging in tree planting, tree care, because it's not just putting them in the ground, but they do need to be cared for, in a, in, especially in an urban setting. Um, so folks that work on that is very inspiring. And I love the one woman, Christine Baker, who I talked to, who is a big planter and carer of urban trees, names them. So every time one gets planted, it gets a name. And that's the stewardship, isn't it? You know, when you can really connect to the trees, connect to what you're doing and care for it. And it brings a lot of joy. Um, just the way I know that our residents feel about their gardens, that they are tending their gardens. And then that brings some joy. So we can take our street trees in that same way and think about them as and tending them. Um, the other thing I was thinking about is that we have an incredible coastline, an incredible ocean, and people are doing wonderful things around trying to bring back our kelp. Um, and perhaps we need to introduce sea otters, <laughs> and that would help us with our urchin problem. But others have really been active in vacuuming up urchins and, you know, trying to really tackle that. But it is a ecosystem collapse problem that is from climate change and changing ocean temperatures, but also from pulling out those keystone species like sea otters. So there are things that we can do to, to help um, manage our ocean ecosystems. Uh, those are some examples. So folks uh, who have wetsuits and miss abalone diving can go sea urchin diving. <laughs> so true. I believe yeah. there is no daily limit on. Is it the purple orchard? Uh, the purple urchins that are sort of taken over. Correct. I actually read exactly. a pretty interesting article last week that says there is sort of an unexpected rebound of kelp along the Sonoma and Mendocino coasts. Yeah, we're happy to see some of it coming back for sure. And we even have a super volunteer, RJ, who lives out on the Mendocino coast part time, who volunteers and monitors. Uh, our abalone um, for the California Department of uh, Fish and Wildlife. So really grateful to volunteers like that who, who help our state agencies as well. And RJ's in the book, and I think we have a pretty cool picture of him in the book, too, of him underwater measuring an abalone. Indeed. Thanks to Kevin Joe, who also, I think, spends quite a bit of time helping the agency. So, yes, there's a real role for folks who want to do monitoring. We could even do more monitoring of our limpets and other kinds of citizen science on our coastline and in our, in our title. Um, I think we have a group that follows the oyster catchers, one of my favorite birds. So participating in community science and citizen science is another great way because as our climate changes so quickly, we really need sort of this cadre of people who go out in the field and collect information so we know what's going on. Some wonderful volunteers at the Hopland Research and Extension Center who work on monitoring the plant phenology, what are the plants doing in the wild, and how, and then that goes into a data repository where researchers and others can see the trends and the changing trends in the, the plant's response to our drying climate. 
So um, getting involved in community science is another great way to work together to address the issues that we face. I wanted to go back quickly to um, your uh, mention of underburning because the story about underburning in the book is um, actually quite interesting and a little bit um, covert because it's not technically legal in a lot of instances to do underburning. And you managed to snag an interview with someone who um, wanted to go only by the initials BB in the book. He agreed to speak with you uh, under sort of a great anonymity. Um, I'm wondering if you want to tell us a little bit about BB and the work his group's doing up in, it was a humble. Yeah, sure. I mean, BB's really worried about, you know, his responsibility and insurance and liability and things like that. And that's totally understandable. And fire is, uh, you have to treat fire with great respect. I think that the sadder thing that sort of came forward also in those interviews and talking to Bill Tripp and the Park tribe is that, you know, for a long time, our indigenous people were actually, um, receive violations, um, imprisonment, and other things uh, when they're practicing indigenous burning. And they are still traumatized by that and much more from their history. Um, and they're really sort of trying to still argue their right to employ um, traditional ways of burning. And it's a, a really important that we uh, support our indigenous communities to practice traditional practices and stewardship. And one of those is when and how to burn. I'm so glad you brought that up because there is a, a sort of renewed focus on honoring indigenous practices and also just knowing that, you know, the indigenous tribes of California and the world were stewarding land before it was a thing. Um, and we got so far away from that. And now we're trying to make our way back. And it's important to put indigenous leaders at the forefront of those efforts um, and not sort of just try to remake it when they they already know what to do and how to do it. So um, absolutely. It was very touched that Greg Saris wrote the forward to the book and talked about his relationship with Mabel McKay and the um, touching story of her dream and understanding of change. Um, so yes, I think that no better storytellers, no better people who have a strong sense of place and we really pull from from those traditions um, to try to bring and center the subject matter in the book so that we're telling narratives and um, that build on, on what's going on in place and what's going on in our interconnectedness with nature and really deepening that interconnection that can lead to uh, more regenerative approaches, I think. Adina, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the on the show with me today. Thank you for being my first guest. Congratulations on the book. Again, I'm going to say the name, uh, Climate Stewardship, Taking Collective Action to Protect California. It's really well-priced. I believe it's $20. You should be able to find it in all of our local bookstores or online. And um, it's definitely worth a read. There's beautiful paintings in it by Obi Kaufman. Um, just a really inspiring book in a time when inspiration can be lacking. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thanks for having me. And thanks to all the listeners, the Farm and Garden Show and KZYX and Z. Go team. Take care, Adina. Bye. Okay. Well, 
I'm Elizabeth Archer. This has been the Farm and Garden Show. I have just one more minute minute to share something about um, an event coming up on this Tuesday, October 12th. It is the return of the Good Farm Fund fundraisers. It is a harvest picnic at Barra. Um, it's been designed to take into account the realities of living in an ongoing pandemic. It's an outdoor only event. You can pre-order your picnic basket, take it to go or stay and enjoy it with live music, lawn games, raffles, um, kids activities. It's kid friendly. It's going to be super fun. And we were talking about gleaners. So I want to say the grateful gleaners donated, gleaned and donated a ton of pears and Kemi's pies is going to be using those pears to make our dessert. So yum. Again, that is this Tuesday, uh, October 12th. You can get your tickets at harvestpicnic.brownpapertickets.com. Thank you so much, everybody. This has been really fun, and I will be back in a month with uh, the next time I host the Farm and Garden Show. Take care. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening. Ah.